0: Good to have us all gathered together again this morning. Good, as I always say, to have our Bibles in our hands. Amen. And uh, so thankful that the Lord would be so kind to us to give His Word, His preserved Word, amen, in our vulgar tongue, in our language, amen, that we can read it and hear it and understand it and the Spirit of God can use it to work upon our own hearts and minds and our own souls. And it's such a glorious thing, and as we continue here, as you know, we are in the book of Philippians, and uh, we know from those who have been here in the past couple of weeks that uh, this book is written by Paul from the Roman prison in about 63 A.D., and uh, it has its title. It's known as the the Epistle of Joy, amen? And so uh, that's really what Paul's been teaching and preaching to us through this glorious letter. I like what one godly pastor said. He said, the measure of a person's spiritual character, the measure of their spiritual strength, the measure of their spiritual uh, maturity is what it takes to steal their joy. I want you to think about that for just a moment. To consider the depth of this. I, I know when I was studying this out and I, and I was reading the text and trying to really grasp and understand, what is Paul doing? What is he saying amongst himself as he's seated there in prison and he's preaching to the brethren and writing to them and saying, no matter what happens, no matter what takes place, there's this joy. And so when I came across this, this quote, I was considering my own self. You guys ever read the word of God and consider your own self? So he asks, what is that which is going to steal your joy? He says this, at whatever point your joy breaks down, that's the level of your spiritual strength. You can find out how mature you are, how spiritually controlled you are, how spiritually sound you are, by finding the breaking point where your joy is lost. Now we understand that there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness generally is controlled by our circumstances, The joy that Paul's talking about, and that is the theme of this letter, is something that Jesus spoke of. He said, I will give you my joy, and the world cannot steal it. Amen? So there's something about this biblical joy that Paul is relaying to us. Listen to as he continues. I'm just going to say this, the, po- the breaking point of where your joy is lost, where bitterness and negativism, a critical spirit, and sullenness begins to creep in and take over your life. That's the true measure of your joy. Our joy is not measured based on those things that we like the way things are. Our joy many times biblically comes from when things are not the way we think they should be or are. Those circumstances that bring testing and those sorts of things that bring some sorrow into our life, maybe at times, these different things. This is what true biblical joy is about. As I said, when I was reading this quote, it made me sit and examine my own self. My wife knows me better than anyone else, amen? And to be quite honest with you, as I considered this, I began to realize that my joy, brethren, Is really controlled too much by my circumstances. Amen. And so we examine this, we look at this, and then Paul the glorious, inspired writer of this letter, the glorious example that he is. And that's really what we're going to see from our text today. The Apostle Paul, who again is a saved man, a Christian obviously, but he's going to lay out this great example for you and I to not allow whatever circumstance comes into your life and in my life to alter our biblical, God-given, Christ-like joy. And again, brethren, as I often say as a pastor, it's very easy to preach things sometimes. It's another thing to live it and to have it deep, you know, just the Spirit of God delve it deep down into our souls. Amen? I mean, so ultimately, as we go through this this morning, it's my prayer for you and my prayer for me that as we look at this glorious example, Paul, as you know, never one time. Again, this is what's so interesting about the Apostle Paul and the example that we're going to see from his life. Do you realize that not one time Never, ever, not one time do we ever see the Apostle Paul, ever, written anywhere in the New Testament where his joy is broken. No matter what's taking place, no matter what's happening in his life, he's attributing it to sovereign God. He's attributing it to that which God is doing in my life is going to be for the furtherance of the gospel, which we're going to see here this morning. Paul was so gospel-centric. He was so always, as we've seen, and we've been studying the Apostle Paul through the book of Acts and through First and Second Thessalonians and now into the book of Philippians. We know this. He's so gospel-centric that he just, it's irrelevant what happens to him as long as the gospel is spreading, as long as the gospel is taking root in the hearts and minds of those people who are indeed around him. Now look at verse number 12 there, if you would, with me this morning, our first verse in the text. Look at verse number 12. Paul says this, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Do you see there again that it doesn't matter what's taking place in Paul's life. He's concerned in saying that God is sovereignly using whatever's happening to him for the furtherance of the gospel, and that should be our attitude as well. Now, Paul, what he's doing here is as he's holding on to the letter, amen, that was sent to him by Epaphroditus. He's looking at this and he sees the Philippians. They're asking him some questions. They're concerned about the Apostle Paul. It's an amazing thing. Isn't it good to have brotherly love, sisterly love, to have brothers and sisters who are concerned about your well-being? Isn't that what we should always be about? Watching over our brothers and our sisters, amen, and taking care of them, helping them, doing those things. It's the same thing here. The Philippians were concerned about the apostle Paul because it appears and it seemed to them that the apostle Paul was having this prolonged imprisonment. (laughs) Why have you been in prison so long, Paul? And their great concern is for him and also, brethren, the furtherance of the gospel. Again, very gospel centric. They were concerned. Of course, having a teacher like Paul, you would be that way. You would understand the importance of the gospel and what it does to men and to women. Now, Paul here, of course, is wanting to alleviate their fears and, their, and calm their concerns. So he says to them that through the eyes of men, it appears that my imprisonment indeed is stifling the gospel. But brethren, just so you know, it's actually the opposite of that. Not only is my imprisonment not only not stifling the gospel and hindering the gospel, it's actually going forth to where God is directing it. And again, brethren, this is what we always must consider when we look at this. In fact he says this it has fallen out. That now again brother, when we have words in the Bible, God didn't put them in there for no reason. They're not in there by mistake. They are placed there by the Holy Spirit of God so we can grasp what the text is saying. So he says what's happened is fallen out. This, the terminology fallen out is an action. His imprisonment was completed in the past, but it's still having remaining results. And so Paul's been in prison a while now. And so he says, those things that have happened to me have fallen out. Fallen out what? For the furtherance. Now listen, brethren, again, the words that we see here were not placed by accident. The falling out, and he says, for the furtherance. You know what the word furtherance means? Again, if you, it literally means to cut down in advance. A cutting and clearing away of brush and trees in an impenetrable, impenetrable forest before an advancing army. So what Paul is saying here, I know, brothers, you're concerned about me. I understand that. But listen, let me tell you what God is actually doing. So we see men's view, and then we see God's view. We understand that from God's perspective. Paul's incarceration, as we know, brother, was indeed God's strategic, uh, if you will, advancement of his kingdom, clearing the way and this is so important, again, as we can get a hold and grasp and see it through God's eyes versus our own, which is what we must learn to do, clearing the way for his gospel to penetrate the ranks of the Roman military, and yes, even into the palace itself. Think of this, brethren, for just a moment again, to have this perspective of Paul. What's taking place to me is actually opening up doors that are normally shut, Normally, the gospel doesn't trace its way into the palace. Normally, the gospel doesn't trace its way or trapes its way into the Roman military. Usually, you're dead before that happens. But not the Lord. He's strategically laying it out here. That Paul, again, as we see this, look what he says in verse 13: So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places, brethren. Listen. Wherever God's elect are, the gospel will go there and find them. Do you understand that? It doesn't matter if they're in a prison. It doesn't matter if they're in the king's palace. It doesn't matter if we're going to see if they're in Caesar's household. When the gospel goes, it goes. And he'll grab that heart. It'll change that heart. It'll change that mind that's in enmity with God. And he will save them where they are. Look at there if you would at the end of the letter, he's going to the palace. Look at chapter four, look at verse number 22. It goes right in again, brother, into a place where normally it would never go. But because of Paul's imprisonment, because he's, he has, if you will, and we're gonna look at this, a captive audience. See, many times, Paul's chained to a Roman soldier. The question is, who's chained to who? Amen? I mean, here's a a captive audience, Paul preaching the gospel. We're going to look at this, and all that soldier can do is he's chained there, and he's listening to Paul preach. Again, a place that the gospel normally would not go. Here's God in his strategic plan, his strategic gospel area, bringing the gospel to some lost soldiers. What an amazing thing. Look there, if you would, at verse number 22. Look what he says. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of what? Caesar's household. And again, brethren, the gospel, because of Paul's imprisonment, is going right into Caesar's household. Again, a place that it normally would not go. Look what it does. It's such an amazing, powerful thing. Howard, uh, again, talked, we had a Bible study this morning, talking about the true gospel, not messing with the gospel, not meddling with the gospel, not softening the gospel, not trying to make sure that, well, well, here, we're going to trick people. Again, we're going to change it a little bit because it'll make it softer for, you know, my lost friend to hear it. No, brother, that is not how God works. He works through the faithful preaching of his gospel. That is the power of God unto salvation. That's what saves. You and I just simply are what? We're faithful. I say it all the time. We're just faithful in saying what God's word says. That's what we do. We don't trick. We don't try and uh, soften things as per se, as many are doing today. Because it saves no one. It saves nobody. It does not. There's no power there. There's no conversion there. There's no change there. And so this is what we see. Look at Luke chapter 8. I want you to see this again. The power of the gospel going where God sends it. Saving and plucking the lost from wherever they are. Uh, Some of us in here this morning were in jail. Some of us were in jail. Some of us were running here and running there doing this and that. And God's gospel came to you there. Now look what it does here. He just absolutely plucks one right out of Herod's palace right out of Herod's, not only Caesar's, not only the palace, but again, we see again the power of the word of God going where only it can go. Again, as I say all the time, into the heart. The pastor can stand here this morning, look at you, you look fine. You may not be fine. The spirit of God knows that. He's the one that knows that inner you, that secret place that only he can go. And he knew Joanna. Look here at Luke chapter 8. Let's look at this together again. The gospel going and saving someone within the palace guard itself, within uh, Herod's palace. Look at Luke chapter 8. Look at verse number 1 there. My pages are all stuck together. Luke chapter 8. Look at verse number 1. Look at the power of this. The Lord Jesus preaching. The Lord Jesus Christ teaching Look what it says, verse 1, And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, the greatest preacher who's ever lived, the perfect preacher who's preached every word perfectly. Not unlike me. (laughs) Unlike me, brethren, A fallible man. The perfect preacher, preaching perfectly, knowing the heart of everyone he ever stood in front of. Look what it says. He says, it came to pass afterward. they went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And a certain woman, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom were seven devils. And Joanna, do you see that there? Who is Joanna? Who is this woman as she's there listening to Christ preach, and she's having demons and devils driven out of them by the power of Christ, by his own word who was she? She's the wife of Cusa, what? Herod's steward. She was in the palace, brethren. She was there in Herod's palace with her husband, with wealth beyond measure. Think of this for a moment, brethren. Just her life in general, how she lived gloriously according to the world's standards, and here's Christ preaching to her. Well, you say, well, how do you know she was saved? Well, I'm glad you asked in the very inquisitive group this morning. Follow a little farther along to Luke chapter 24. Look at here. Our Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died there. They were there at the foot of the cross. They were there, and they came a little bit later, and I want you to see this. Look at Luke chapter 24. Again, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ speaking life. That's the thing, brethren. <laughs> Again, that's the power of it. He could speak. And it happened. He would speak and life would come. It's an amazing thing, brethren. And what did he leave for us, for that dead man to come to life, that dead woman, that dead child? What did he leave for the preacher to preach? His own thoughts? No, brethren. But it is indeed the very word of God, which the author of Hebrews says, it is powerful, active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to go again to places we can't go, the pastor can't go there. I can't go to your heart. And again, it's so precise and powerful. It says that it's even what? Bone and marrow. It separates that. And then it gets even deeper. It goes, listen, brethren, to the very thoughts and intent of the heart. That's power. That's change. This is what happens. Look here, if you would. Who is now looking for their Savior? The one whom they have just seen be crucified the one who was in the grave for three days and three nights. And when they come, this is what they hear. Look there if you would, Luke chapter 24, look at verse number five. We'll begin there. Listen to what it says. And as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, why seek ye the living among the dead? One of the greatest statements in all of Scripture, brethren, he is not here jesus christ as i've said before go to muhammad's grave go to muhammad's grave go to any religious quote-unquote leader's grave stand at the gravestone and when you call his name he'll say i'm here because he is not resurrecting from the dead like the lord jesus christ he's not here look what it says He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the sepulcher and told all these things unto eleven and to all the rest. Look at verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene, and who? And Joanna. There she is. One who was in Herod's palace. Right there, hearing the word of God. God saving. Here she is seeing her Savior, looking for her Savior, who's risen from the dead, brethren. Amen? What an amazing thing. Here she is again, the Spirit of God, the gospel going to a place that normally the doors were shut. But because of the power of Christ, the power of his preaching, the power of the word, it goes right in and takes Joanna right out of the pit of hell. This is exactly what we see for two whole years. Two years, brother. Think about that. I was just uh, asking these brothers here this morning, their ages. I mean, holy smokeroonies. I feel old. 19. I don't know how old your brother is. Are you, what are you, brother? Huh? 28. 28. Okay, well, you're still young. These young people, This 19, these 28-year-olds, right? It's, it's a truly a stunning amazing thing. And we, we see this here for two years. Think of this. <laughs> Remember, the gospel came not only to the palace, but also to the Roman military. Amazing. Again, another place where it normally would never go for two years. The guards were under the constant influence of Paul's preaching and the gospel of Christ. I want you to see this again. Look at Acts chapter 28. Remember, we preached through this. I want you to see this. Just forward a little bit to Acts chapter 28. And again, you see this. That's why I ask. See, the prison guards thought that Paul was chained to them. Actually, they were chained to him. Because they had to keep watch on him and they were constantly, they were rotating, but these guards were constantly being rotated and chained to Paul. What do you think Paul was doing? You think he was talking about, you know, tomorrow's, you know, uh, uh, show on TV? Was he talking about as the world turns? No, brethren. He is gospel-centric. What he was doing was being used of God. Through the eyes of men, it appeared the gospel was going nowhere, that it was restrained. And yet, God did this. Instead of sending Paul out to the world at this point in his life, you know what God did? He brought the world to Paul. Think of that for a moment, this glorious working of God. Hey, we're worried, brother, the gospel is going to stop. God says, oh, no, 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 no. nothing stops the power of the gospel. You're chained right now because I have some elect right here that are inside the palace, they are inside the Roman military. You need to preach to them. And so God just brought them to him. You know, that would be such a glorious, amazing thing, wouldn't it? To be such a part of that. Look at Acts chapter 28. Look at verse number 16. And when he came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. And so you see there again, there's this captive audience. Paul didn't have to go anywhere. Reminds me, Brother Eli's not here this morning, so I can tell. I can tell it Wednesday evening. He was showing me on the airplane. You know what an airplane's like? You know how closed off an airplane is? I mean, it's not like you can do something and hop off the airplane. So they're flying it. Hope, hope he doesn't mind. Brother Eli, I'll ask for forgiveness tomorrow when I see you. Here he is. He brings his phone over to me. And again, I know he doesn't like, he's not doing this to brag. He was just showing. Look at the opportunity God gave me. He stands up in the airplane, pulls his Bible out of his back pocket, and starts preaching the gospel on the airplane. There's nowhere to go. We go street preaching. Amen. You, we go street preaching a lot. You can stand in the corner, but there's places to go. When you're on an airplane flying at 40,000 feet in the air, all you're getting is the gospel. This is the kind of audience that God gave Paul. Hey, you're chained. And guess what? We're not talking about tomorrow's goofy stories. We're talking about the thing that separates one from heaven and hell. That is the gospel of Christ. Look at there, if you would, just a little farther along in the text. Look at verse 30 of Acts 28. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Again, brethren, the idea here is that Paul, the the brothers at Philippi were concerned about Paul, he's in prison, he's been in prison too long, and in all actuality, all you see is the sovereign hand of God, seeking, going, and getting his elect, amen, and saving them. Now, brethren, That's a whole different perspective, isn't it, than what we normally have. We look at our circumstances, again, those things that we may not like, and we look at them as some kind of a drudgery of some sort, and yet if we look at it through the eyes of God, through his eternal work, there is something there that he's using in your life for this, for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. This is the thing we must keep within our own thoughts. Now look back there, Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 14. So all of this is being played out. Paul is, of course, teaching and writing to the brethren concerning these things. Now look at here, if you would, as you look at this, what this says. Verse number 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, in other words, Christians, saved people. You see, verse 13 had an effect on the lost, Verse 14 has an effect on the saved. So God's purpose, again, his glory is being used through all of this. He's having an effect on both the lost and the saved in this text. Look there, if you would. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you see what's happened here? Paul is preaching the gospel, his imprisonment. They're looking at it as something that is, is not a good thing. And Paul just says, oh, no, no. Here's how the Lord's going to use this in your life. He's going to embolden you through what I'm doing. So again, we see this effect on the lost and on the saved. And brethren, every message, every message preached, there should always be the idea, the thought of the sheep How is this going to affect the sheep? How is it going to help the sheep? How is it going to grow the sheep in the Lord Jesus Christ? How is it going to help them? And yes, brethren, outside of that, there's always the other side, the flip side of that. How is that same word going into the heart of the lost? We should always be concerned with the saved and how God is edifying and using his word for that. But there's always that secondary thing where the lost, too, are being affected. And this is what Paul says. It gave them great boldness. And we see that here. Now listen. The thing we have to understand is that during the day of Rome, the time of Rome, it's not like America. Can we get this stuff, kind of this stuff out of our heads for just a moment? You guys, we don't know how blessed we are. Do you realize this this morning? One kind lady, I wear a gun, she comes. She goes, has there been a problem here at the church? No, but we don't want a problem. And then what did she say to me? Oh, I'm so thankful. Times have changed so much. Yes, they have. But brethren, the church for the most part in America and the West has been at peace. We're still at peace to a large degree, although it's growing, isn't it, brethren? And the hostilities are not coming from the world so much, but from other churches. Yep. Other quote-unquote believers who say they believe, and they're not believers. It's an amazing thing. But you see this thing in Rome, it was not like that. If you preached, if, brother, if the brother stood up on an airplane, they didn't have them back then, but if he did, he would normally be beheaded, OK? He'd either be beheaded or thrown in prison. This is what your choices were. And for the most part in the world, even today, that's your choice. Two-thirds of the world. Our brother Dean, our other elders, been in, in India for almost five months now. They'll be back, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. He was telling me when I talked to him this week that up north, just north of him, pastors are being slayed and killed for the gospel. They're now meeting in homes quiet. That's the general way that the gospel is, and it's the same way in Rome at this time. If you stood up and preached the gospel, we go out on the street out here when we preach the gospel. Somebody drives by and flips you off. Ooh, ooh, I got persecuted. Ooh, that guy flipped me off. Did you see that? No, brethren. Uh-uh. Or you might have some some uh some well, what would be the terminology in a kind way? Some very mean woman who thinks she's a man screaming in your face. That's what you get here. Not here. When you confess Christ, when you believed him and you preach the gospel your life was in danger. You were either going to prison or you were going to have your head taken off. Amen? And Paul says, because of my imprisonment, do you see this? Because of my imprisonment, because of what God is doing in my own life, my brothers look and see and they say, I'm bold in that. I'm bold in that. It's making me stronger. It's making me want to, again, risk my life for the gospel of Christ. And this, again, is what he's saying and what he sees. In fact, that word boldness, I chuckled this morning in Bible study because it was read a couple times in Acts. That word boldness is an important word for us. To wax the brother bold, to wax yourself bold. It's an amazing thing. You know what it is? It's to to act with extreme conduct and courage. Can I say that again? To act with extreme conduct and courage. That's what they had to do. They had to act with extreme conduct and courage because whack, the sword was coming. Amazing, isn't it? Again, like I said, we preach here and we think being bold, you know, someone, uh, someone called me a Jesus freak and you know, drove by and threw a pie out the window at me or their beer at you, one or the other, which we've had happen on several occasions. They weren't all that happy to see us, actually. But nothing like this. Nothing like this. Take our Western mind out of it. Put our, put our Hebrewic hat on. First century hat. then you'll understand what it means to both. In fact, look at First Thessalonians, a book that we were in not too long ago. Paul mentions this. Look at First Thessalonians there, if you would. Turn back just a book or two. First Thessalonians, chapter two. Look what Paul did. You remember he reminded us of this. Look what he says. Verse number 1, chapter 2, look at verse number 1. For yourselves, brother, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before, we were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. So again, he's explaining to that brother, to those brothers, what happened in Philippi. What does he say? He says there, we were bold. Do you see that there? They acted with extreme conduct and courage in spite of what was happening to them, in spite of the the threat of death in prison. They were acting bold, the Bible says, in our God, to speak unto you our own mind, to speak unto you our own thoughts. No, no, brethren, the gospel, that which is powerful. Again, as I say, that's the power. Look what it says there. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Now again, brethren, we understand this. I like what Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon said this about the church. The church has never lost any of her numbers. Persecutions have winnowed her and driven away the chaff. Excuse me, the chaff. Isn't that good to have the chaff removed? It is good to have the chaff removed from the church. Amen? Listen to what he says. But not one grain of wheat has been taken away from the heap. She is like Israel and Egypt. The more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied. What an amazing concept. What an amazing thing to see. That what Paul sees, this persecution that he's undergoing, it's just winnowing. God is winnowing his church. He's removing the chaff. He's been boldening the brothers to preach more and to be more boldly. Just be truthful. Just preach truthfully. And you know what the Spirit of God does? It's amazing. <laughs> It's just amazing, again, he takes the word and he takes it into the heart and the mind of whoever he wills, whenever he wishes, however he wishes, and applies that so gloriously. Again, I ask you, can you trick someone who's dead? Can you trick someone who's dead? You realize the Bible says that the lost man is dead in his sins and trespasses. Can you trick a dead man? I don't know about you, but I can't. Amen? There's only one who can resurrect that dead man. And that's the Holy Spirit of God regenerating them to life that they can see, hear, and understand. We can't trick anybody. That's why, brethren, let us be faithful stewards of God's word. Let us preach it boldly, straightly, as uh, our other elder always says, let us cut it straight. Straight as can be. And God's word will do what he sends it forth to do. It is an amazing thing to behold, brethren, it really is. Now look here, Paul, of course, as we understand and know, studying him and living it out as an elder, as a pastor myself. Brethren, you know there's always strife. There's always things that go on in the body of Christ, in the fellowship. It's an amazing thing to watch. You know why? You know, it's like I always tell people, the church would be a great place. Until I show up and screw it up. till I bring my problems into it. Amen. Which we all do. That's why we got to love one another. Care for one another. Do all of those one another's. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Help one another. We're all on the same level. We're all here together. Your warts and mine. Amen. Paul says there's trouble. There was trouble there. And I want you to see what kind of trouble was being hoisted upon him. Look there again at Philippians Chapter 1, look at verses 15 and 16. There's always trouble, brother. I was on the phone this last week with a pastor friend of mine down in uh, New Mexico. Amazing. <laughs> just just amazing. Brother, forgive me if you're watching or you ever hear this. But he, he ran into a lady in a restaurant. And uh, he recognized, she recognized him and he kind of recognized her. It was a lady that used to be in his church. It was his daughter, her daughter. And uh, the pastor applied biblical, holy, good discipline to the mother, and the mother left. She was not going to submit to the elders and the church and the holy discipline that was needed okay you're not just leaving your husband for no reason you're not going to do that and you're not going to go live over here you're not doing that the church is not going to allow that okay and off she went well he hadn't seen this daughter for a long time and the daughter comes up to him in the restaurant and she goes I recognize you you kicked my mom out of the church I'll never serve you again do you, do you see what happens when, when you simply apply biblical truth? People say they're Bible believers. As soon as you apply the discipline biblically, they're out the door. You stink, you're mean, you're, you're, you hate me, this kind of thing. No, nothing could be further from the truth. What is better than fixing a situation God's way? What is better than looking at scripture and going, I need to submit to God's word. I need to submit to those things because that's the best way. Why do you wander off, thinking it's mean? It wasn't mean. And if you know this pastor, which I know fairly well, he is one of the most pastoral men I've ever met. He's one of the just a sound man in the faith. You'd never ever see a mean bone in that man's body. See, that's why that's why Dean is here, because uh, you know Howard and I take that part up, right? We're a little more boisterous, that kind of thing. And brother Dean just so calm, just so calm and cool brothers let us prevail meanwhile Howard and I are going wild it's good but this is what Paul is concerned about this is what he's he's saying here look at the trouble look there well I I call them twins they're they're stitched together and brethren when these two evils are stitched together look out duck your head because not only is two of them stitched, there's four of them in the end that are stitched together here, these evils, and they cause all kinds of problems. Now look here, if you would, at verses 14 or 15 and 16. Some indeed preach Christ even out of what? Envy and strife. When you got those two tethered together in a church, you are in trouble. There is trouble coming. Look at what else it says. And some also of goodwill. So we have here, you know, we have some some inappropriate ways of preaching Christ and some appropriate ones of doing it. We're going to look at that. Look at verse 16. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerity, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Boy, there's a lot here, brethren, in this text. And I've got a few minutes to do this. But beginning here in verse 15 and continuing through verse 17, Paul catalogs, he reveals for us, the different, if you will, motives that men had for preaching the gospel. Now, it's important for us to consider here as we look at this. His critics, those whom he's speaking of here in the church, were indeed teaching and preaching the true Christ. They weren't teaching some kind of an aberrant Jewish doctrine of some sort or some kind of another Christ or some kind of another word. And we know this, and I'll show you this for a minute. You think Paul, for one minute, would let someone preach Christ? in an unholy way, just like the demon girl did back in Acts 13. Remember, he stopped her. She, what did she say? Well, these men are telling you the way to God. And Paul says, no, hold on, you're not preaching. I'm preaching. You're not preaching. You're a demon. You're not preaching God's word. Here he lets them go. He says, oh, yes, they're preaching the true Christ. And sometimes, brethren, we have to be patient with people, patient with brother, brothers, and sisters in the Lord. Because their motives may not be right, but they are preaching the right Christ, and that's what matters. When you go up to a Mormon and they say, we have the same Christ, you better say, we don't have the same Christ. You have a different Christ than I do of the Bible, and they know it. Envy and strife, it's an amazing thing. Now. We know that they were preaching the Christ of sacred scriptures, because Paul, again, would never rejoice at the preaching of a false or counterfeit Christ concerning something as crucial as the gospel. Look at verse 18. Again, all of our text is really on the foundation of verse 18. All of this takes place and all Paul can say is, I'm rejoicing. I'm so grateful and full of joy that the gospel is being preached. Look at verse 18. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. We're going to look at that. That's a, past, that's a past tense and a present tense and a future tense that he says there. But Paul, again, is rejoicing that even though these motives are wrong, even though they have envy, which let me just describe for you what that is. Envy is the feeling of disapproval when hearing about the success or blessings of others. You ever have that? Somebody, is their ministry's blessed or something's blessed and you're envious of that? It's a feeling that comes upon you of ill towards them. Brethren, that should never be. And this is what they were doing. They were preaching the gospel out of envy because they had this, this ill feeling towards Paul. Because of what the Lord was doing in his ministry. <laughs> Think of that. I'm in prison here and I'm preaching to lost people and they're getting saved. Amazing. It's always used in a negative way. Or an evil sense in the New Testament always. It's like pride. Oh, I have so much pride. I have so much envy. I love envy. I like envy. I like pride. No, never. Not once is it ever spoken of. Well, in Scripture, not one time. Pride or envy, by the way. We should be thankful. We have nothing to be prideful for. We have nothing to be envious of. What did Paul write to the Corinthians? Why do you boast... Is though you have something you haven't been given. What have you been given? You've been given everything. Yet Paul says there's these men, they were full of envy. Look at also strife. Strife is an expression of hostility. And when these two evils, as I said, are stitched together, it literally can neutralize a church. Let me show you the depth of envy. Again, sometimes we, <clears throat> we hear these words, we read these words like gossip. We read this stuff and we don't understand The total destruction they can have on a church. I have. I've experienced that little one. You think little gossip isn't bad? It's evil as can be. And it spreads like a canker, like an unbelievable sore in the church. Causes division. All kinds of things. So does envy. Look here what the Bible says. Look back in the Old Testament, Proverbs chapter 14 with me for just a moment. Proverbs chapter 14. We'll get words of wisdom from, from the, the book that the Hebrews would read and do read regularly. Because why? This is how God is telling them to live in the world. These are things that are good for you. Look how he addresses envy here in Proverbs chapter 14. Look at verse number 29. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. A sound heart is the life of the flesh. But what? Envy is the rottenness of the bones. Do you realize what that means? I mean, he's talking about complete infection of the inner man. Complete and total and yet we envy's not a big deal. It's no problem. Strife's not a big deal. That's no problem. Yes it is, brethren. When you have an envious spirit towards a brother or sister, be careful. Because what it does then is it brings strife. It creates strife. It's it's one sin on top of another. They grow together. It's an amazing thing. It really is when you consider that. In fact, our brother James, back in the book of James, turn back there, he stitches them together here in the same text. Look at James chapter 3. Just quickly here. And, uh, And again, we'll look at this together quickly. Look at how it grows. This again, brethren, Paul is... Is is saying that these men have these ill intentions, and they are. But still, he doesn't condemn them as unbelievers. He says they're still preaching Christ. It's just they have wrong motives. Their motives are ill intended. Look here at verse number 14. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, that's of the world. Strife and envy are of the world. Look at the second thing there. It's sensual. That means that it's of the flesh, not of the spirit. Envy and strife are sensual. They're of the flesh, not of the spirit. And then look what he says. Devilish. Where does strife and envy come from? From the father of lights? Or does it come from the devil himself? That's right. That's what he says. Look what he says. For where envying and strife is, there is what? Confusion in every evil work. You see how that grows out, brethren? This is what Paul's saying. They're preaching Christ, although they're doing it in such a way that is very dangerous. They're preaching the right Christ, but they have very bad motives. In fact, in verse 16, Paul says they were preaching Christ out of contention. In other words, their selfish ambition. That's what that words mean. Not in sincerity. Not with pure intentions. Listen, a quad of evil intentions that Paul lays out there for us. And yet, even though they're doing this, they are indeed preaching the Christ of Holy Scripture. So again, brethren, as we look at this, there's obviously discipline there, but let us finish this up. Look there, if you would, back in Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse 15 and verse 17 together again because I want you to see the right motives. When one preaches Christ with the right motives, these should be our motives. Look there, if you would, at verse number 15 again. Some indeed preach Christ even out of envy and strife. And some also out of what? Goodwill. There's a right motive. Here's the wrong motive. Here's a right motive. not Brother Keith always says that. The Lord never, he never tells you not to do something without filling it in with something you're supposed to do. So don't have envy and strife, but have goodwill when you're preaching Christ. Amen? Which it's, it's, it's just hard to believe. And then you look there at verse 17, but the other out of love. So again, Paul lays out these good biblical motives for preaching Christ. One is of goodwill. The other one is out of what? Love, concern for those who are lost. And we should have that. Somebody had a love and concern for you before you got saved. That someone brought the gospel to you because they had a love and concern and their motives were right and pure. I remember the pastor that the Lord used to lead me to the Lord every second, every minute. Wendy knows this. He'd leave his Bible out. He'd tell me, read this scripture, read that scripture, read the Bible. And it wasn't him that converted me. It was indeed the power of God that converted me. Thankful the Lord used him. And you guys all have someone too, I'm sure, that you know whom God used in a great and mighty way. Now listen. Verse 15, goodwill. It's a kindly feeling of approval and benevolent interest or concern. Again, that's a good motive. Verse 17, the other out of love. Love is the source for what we do. It is the, in advance on goodwill, if you will. Now, brethren, listen. Just let me just finish this up quick. This term goodwill is so important to you and I. It has such deep and depth of meaning to us. Turn with me to the book of Luke. I want you to see, again, a familiar portion of scripture. I want you to see this. Now, brethren, you consider this. As we always say, we must always be careful. When the Lord saves us and you've been around his people for a while, that you don't become too puffed up. That you don't become too uh, arrogant in your walk because you're saved and someone else isn't. Never. May it never be. Because remember this. Luke chapter 2. Look at here. That terminology is used again. Look at verse number 11. Again, a familiar portion of scripture to us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Here it is, brethren. Just think of God's goodwill that he has given to all men. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ. That's literally what it means. Goodwill. It means his kindly feeling of approval, his benevolence, his interest, his concern and love towards us. Brethren, this is what Paul is saying. When one preaches the gospel, a proper motive should be the goodwill of those you're preaching to, being truthful, and yet being filled with goodwill and love towards them, amen? This is what Paul is saying, one out of love, one out of goodwill, and there's a whole bunch of them that are trying to cause me trouble with envy, strife, and every other contentious thing you can think of, and yet here we are, you should always a pastor whether you're preaching in a pulpit, whether you're standing on a street corner, whether you stand up in an airplane, you should always have the motive. Why am I doing this? Is it so someone can record me on a phone? Someone can put me you know, up, on a, up on a face, TikTok, Facebook, face, whatever that is, TikTok, Facebook, whatever you got. No, it's because we should have goodwill towards them because the Lord has had goodwill towards me and sending the Lord Jesus Christ to save my wretched soul. Now listen, let's finish this up. Look back there. Look at verse number 18 quickly. Philippians chapter 1. Look at verse number 18. I'm going to warn you. We're going to have a little longer close today, but it's important. Look there at verse number 18. What then, notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do rejoice, therein I do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice rejoice. Now, And Paul here expresses both a present tense and a future tense in the text. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says, I do rejoice? That's present tense. As he sits in jail, <laughs> as he sits in prison in Rome, he says, no matter what, I'm going to rejoice. I do rejoice because gospel of Christ is being preached, even if there's ill intentions with some of them. And he says, I will rejoice. I do and I will Which means that he will indeed, that no matter what comes his way in the future, he will indeed rejoice that he has been chosen by God to preach the gospel to whoever will listen and hear. Amen? This should be our attitude. I do rejoice when someone's preaching the gospel, and I will rejoice no matter what happens. Amen? This is the kind of trust and benevolence feeling that Paul had towards God because he knows that I'm sitting in prison, and yet the Lord is working this out perfectly for their will, or for their good and mine. What an amazing thing to consider. Now, I want to close, and as I said, this is going to take a little bit, but I want us to listen carefully. I want us to listen very carefully. As we bring this a little closer in time, what does it mean, just, I'm in prison, and that, you know, whatever the Lord's will is. And I want you to listen as I read this to us. And I want you to see if you can pick out what men through men's eyes and then through God's eyes. Many of us are familiar with John Bunyan. Many of us are familiar with him. I actually found a transcript of his trial. It's stunning. It's a stunning thing. Him and, him and the judge are having a conversation. And I want you to listen how the judge tries to use his emotions to get him to stop preaching the gospel. And then you see John Bunyan's response. I must be faithful to God first. Listen to this. Judge Wingate says, Mr. Bunyan, you stand before this court accused of persistent and willful transgression of the Convenial Act, which prohibits all British subjects from absenting themselves from worship in the Church of England and from conducting worship services apart from our church. So Bunyan was sinning so badly he wasn't going to the Church of England, he was having, he was a Baptist. He was having his own services and it was strictly forbidden. The judge says, I must warn you, sir, of the gravity of the charge, the harshness of the penalty in the event of your conviction. I hold in my hand the depositions of witnesses against you. Bunyan says, well, the depositions uh, speak the truth. I have never attended the services of the Church of England, nor do I intend to do start doing so. Isn't <laughs> it is an amazing here as he says that, right? Secondly, Bunyan said, it is no secret that I preach the word of God whenever, wherever, and to whomever God grants me opportunity. That's who I preach to. This should be our attitude, brethren. And as true as these things are, I must affirm that I neither regret breaking the law nor repent of having broken it. Further, I must warn you that I have no intention in the future of conforming to it. You know, you think of Martin Luther, you think of Spurgeon, you think of these great men, John Huss, John Knox, think of them all who went to their fiery deaths because of the truth of of God, rather than compromise. But listen, it goes on. Like I said, it'll take just a minute here. Wingate says, Judge Wingate says to him, it is obvious, sir, that you are a victim of deranged thinking. The evidence I hold in my hand, even apart from your own admission of guilt, is sufficient to convict you. The court is within its rights to have you committed to prison for a considerable long time. I do not wish to send you to prison, Mr. Bunyan. I am aware of the poverty of your family. Now listen, he's standing there on God's truth. What does the judge do? And I've read the whole thing. These are excerpts from it that I've taken out of there. I don't think the judge wanted to send him to prison, but look at what he does. He tries to get his emotions going. Listen to what he says. I'm aware of the poverty of your family, and I believe you have a little daughter who unfortunately was born blind. Is that not so, Mr. Bunyan? Yes, my lord. Judge Wingate, very well. The decision of the court is this. And as much as the accused has confessed his guilt, we shall follow a merciful and compassionate course of action. We shall release him on the condition. There's always these conditions. I think uh, the brothers up in Canada, there's always these conditions. Shall release him on the condition that he swears solemnly to discontinue the convening of these religious meetings of his. And that he affix his signature to such an oath prior to quitting the courtroom. That will be all, Mr. Bunyan. I hope not to see you here again. May we hear the next case, please? He thinks it's all done. Bunyan says, my Lord. <laughs> Hold on a minute. <laughs> if I may have another moment of the court's time. Wingate says, yes, but you must be quick about it. We have other matters to attend to. What is it? John Bunyan says, my Lord, I cannot do what you ask me. I cannot place my signature upon any document in which I promise henceforth not to preach. My calling to preach the gospel is from God, and he alone can make me discontinue what he has appointed me to do. As I have no word from him, and to that effect, I must continue to preach. I shall continue to preach. There's Bunyan standing on the truth. What does the judge do? Listen carefully. I warn you, sir, the court has gone a second mile to be lenient with you out of concern for your family's difficult straits. Truth to tell, it would appear that the court's concern for your family far exceeds your own. Do you wish to go to prison? No, my lord, I don't wish to go to prison. It's the last thing I wish to have happen to me. Can you comply with this condition? Wingate asked Mr. Bunyan, before you answer, mark you this, should you refuse, the court will have no alternative but to send you to prison term, think, sir, of your poor wife. Do you see what's happening? The emotions are being drawn out. God has nothing to do with it. It's the emotions. Now listen, we can't comprehend this in the West because we don't understand this. But in that time in England, it was a deal. You gathered with Bible-believing Christians like we are, not the Church of England ever. Listen. Listen to what he says. Think of your children, and particularly of your pitiful, sightless little girl. Think of your flock. He even brings the church in. Now, brethren, listen as we continue. I'm almost done. John Bunyan says to him, My Lord, I appreciate the court's efforts Uh, to be, as you have put it, accommodating. But again, I must refuse your terms. I must repeat that it is God who constrains me to preach. And no man or company of men may grant or deny me, leave a speech. Wingate says to him, very well, Mr. Bunyan, since you persist in your intractability and since you reject the court's honest effort to compromise, you leave us no choice. But to commit you to Bedford jail for a period of six years. And if you know Bunyan, it wasn't six years, they doubled it. It was 12 years. 12 years, now listen to this, Wingate says to him, if you manage to survive, Mr. Bunyan, I should think that your experience will correct your thinking. (laughs) If you fail to survive, that will be unfortunate. In any event, I strongly suspect uh, that we have heard the last we shall ever hear of Mr. John Bunyan. Now, may we move on to the next case. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we all know, listen carefully. We all know that the world and that the judge, this was not the last time they heard of John Bunyan. Amen? You realize that through the eyes of men, it appeared as he used his family as a ploy to get him to submit and disobey God, that Bunyan said, no, 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 I'm not. Just like John Knox, same thing. These men were incredible, incredible men. No. Through the eyes of, of men, it seemed unkind that Bunyan would go to prison but in the eyes of God it is exactly what he ordained to bring to pass you know why again that was not the last he heard of Bunyan or us have heard of Bunyan how many in here if I could just take a hand how many in here read Pilgrim's Progress how many how many have read the Pilgrim's Progress I mean the whole place think of this for a moment Off with you, Mr. Bunyan. That's the last we're going to hear from you. And even today in 2024, what he did is being effectual. It's the same thing Paul said when he said it's the furtherance of the gospel. I mean, whacking things down and what's taking place is going to have a lasting effect. And brethren, it's the same thing here. Isn't this glorious? Think of how useful that is to us. How practical as Christians it is to us to know that there's men here. That by the providential of hand of God, it was the last thing. Now listen, Bunyan had his Bible in his hand, as you know. Anybody know? <laughs> I can't ask questions. If it was Wednesday night, I would. Anybody know how many people Bunyan preached to every day when he was in prison? Anybody know? Upwards of 300. Think of that. We're going to stick you in prison. We're not going to hear another word from you. And day after day after day after day, people would gather in the street and he would preach through the bars to them. Three, four hundred every day. (laughs) They hadn't heard the last of John Bunyan. It's a stunning thing. Through the eyes of men that looked bad, his children, all these things. But in the eyes of God, Bunyan saw the gospel and what must happen. I must be obedient to God above all things everything, and being faithful to his word, amen, being faithful to the things of God. Through the eyes of heaven, it was God in his providential bringing the world to Bunyan, giving him a captive audience to preach to. Isn't that something when you think about that? They tried to keep him from the world, and the world came to him, (laughs) just like Paul, just like Paul. Hey, we're going to put you in prison. The gospel is going to be stopped. No, it isn't. I'm just going to bring the hearers to you, and then I'm going to chain them to you. (laughs) Look at that. Brother Keith, I think of you. I got to stop. I don't. Who was that? We went preaching one time. What was that guy's name? Two of them, Uh, Marilyn Manson, Marilyn Manson, concert in town, Marilyn Manson concert in town. There's Keith. There's me. We're down there. And uh, our old sheriff, Brother Pat, was there, and uh, it was amazing because they were lined up. Remember Brother Keith? There was lines of them going in, and there we were with the Word of God, a captive audience. They weren't able to get away. (laughs) They just had to sit there and listen to me preach. Imagine that. What a glorious thing, brother. And what an opportunity. It was glorious. In fact, I had one guy come out of the crowd and go, Hey, I'm a Christian too. Uh, You know, you're making us look foolish. And I looked at him and said, Sir, if you were a Christian, you would never mingle with this. You would never mingle with that. You'd be with me. Concern for their souls. Concern for their well-being and their spiritual well-being. You wouldn't be joining him in the pool of manure. You'd be here. And I told him that. Sir, you're, you should be ashamed. Saying you're a Christian and doing this and acting this way. Amen. We should be bold. We should indeed have extreme conduct and courage when we're preaching the gospel. We've got to bring this to a close. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we, again, are always amazed at how you work through men and through women through saved children. It's an amazing thing to behold. The Bible says, and we believe this, that when you save a lost sinner, you are glorified in that. And we understand the depth of that, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the means. The means, of course, is men and women being faithful to the word of God and preaching, excuse me, preaching that. We think of Jonah Go look at Jonah sometime. What an amazing uh, preacher he was. Even though he had wrong motives. Oh, we could have used him as a great example. And yet, he preached an eight-word sermon. Go look it up. Eight words. But he preached what God told him to preach, which was those eight words to a whole city. And salvation came even into the palace. That day. What a glorious thing. Even the king ripped his clothes off and put on sackcloth and he repented and sat in the dust because of eight words. But they were powerful words, the powerful words that God told him to preach. Father, may we be faithful in that as well. We're not responsible for the results, we're responsible for preaching the word. Christ is our witness. As Paul said, God is our witness how we handle these things. May we be faithful to you and not to men who try and draw us away, try and soften us down. May we be doing it in love and concern for those who are lost. Father, I thank you again for our meeting. And now as we gather around the Lord's table, we will remember and proclaim to the world your death till he comes. Thank you now. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen.